Hello, listeners. This is the Eclipse Viewer, episode 59, as uh, Trevor, Matt, and I continue our series on Late Ozu. Uh, I'm going to just go ahead and go on the good faith assumption that if you are listening to part two of a three-part series, you've already listened to part one. So we're going to kind of breeze through the introductions, but just to make sure we're all clear who's on board today. Uh, my name is David Blakesley, a regular host of the Eclipse Viewer, along with my regular co-host, Trevor Barrett. Hello, Trevor. How are you? I'm great, David. Yes, and I'm glad to be with you once again as we near the uh, final final, but we got uh, two more episodes to go, this one and the <laughs> next one, and then we'll see what the future holds. And uh, again, rejoining us to delve deep into this last phase of Ozu's career is Matt Gasteyer. Hello, Matt. Hello. Thanks for having me back. Yes. Excited no. as always. You did very good the first episode. You passed the audition, so <laughs> we've got you back for, for round two. So as I've already said, this is part two of a three-part series on the late Ozu films, this last uh, glorious phase of Yasujiro Ozu's uh, spectacular career. As we now make the transition into his color era, we are going to talk about Equinox Flower, kind of the middle uh, selection of the late Ozu set. And we're also going to throw in a few comments about Good Morning and Floating Weeds, uh, two color films that Criterion has released in standalone editions. Uh, Good Morning recently uh, reissued in a really beautiful Blu-ray upgrade package uh, earlier this uh, summer. And then uh, Floating Weeds, uh, part of a two-disc set that Criterion released uh, probably about I don't know, 12, 10, 12 years ago, uh, as a DVD-only selection, along with A Story of Floating Weeds, the silent film from the 30s that Floating Weeds was a pretty self-conscious remake of. Uh, so really, we're going to dig deepest into Equinox Flower, talk about those uh, two films, just to kind of provide the connective tissue that will get us in touch with Late Autumn and The End of Summer, the two films that we'll be talking about in our next episode uh, of the Eclipse Viewer podcast. So, guys, let's just kind of get right into it. Equinox Flower. This is a pretty uh, important movie for Ozu. This is uh, his first film in color and uh, really one that I enjoyed quite tremendously. Uh, who'd like to kind of kick the conversation off and, and just kind of maybe give us a little capsule of this movie and, and uh, what it represents for Ozu? Maybe we can talk about the color and all that stuff, but uh, who wants to take the cue and run with it? Well, I, I can do it if uh, yeah, unless ahead, uh, unless you're itching to to recount, uh, <laughs> Trevor. Go ahead. Um, so yeah, so Equinox Flower, obviously uh, his first film in color, and uh, it's uh, kind, of, kind of widely viewed as a bit of a shift for him from the older generation to the younger generation. Although that's a bit ironic, considering that it's it's pretty clear that the the main character in the film is the father figure. Um, so we, uh, the film opens with, uh, sort of a, uh, Greek chorus, uh, to a certain degree, a, a bit of an aside, uh, which occasionally happens in Ozu films, uh, where we start at a train station, which is not unusual for Ozu. Um, and there's a, a wedding party getting ready to depart. Uh, and we, we start on two, uh, kind of, street cleaners or, or janitors at the train station uh, discussing the various uh, wedding parties they've seen that day uh, and kind of uh, uh, gossiping about the uh, how attractive the couples are, in particular <laughs> the, uh, the female of the party. Um, 
and uh, then they they kind of get into a bit of the weather and uh, how good always follows the bad if a storm is coming. Um, and then uh, quickly cut to uh, uh, one of those wedding parties that they're discussing. Uh, and we, we never really go back to them. And it's a uh, it's a wedding party of a couple that we will not see again in the film. Um, but we are introduced to um, to the the lead character. I forget his name. I don't have it in front of me. Um, Hirayama. Yes, yeah. Hirayama. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and uh, he he is a friend of the father of the bride. Um, he uh, went to high school with him. And uh, he is uh, surprisingly called on to give a speech. <laughs> they they announce uh, to everybody there that it's he a toast, uh, has to mainly. give a speech. Yeah. A toast, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and uh, he 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 just looks around and says, "Me? Is that <laughs> are they talking about me?" Um, and so he stands up and uh, clearly um, an impromptu uh, toast from him uh, goes on to to praise the. Uh, bride and the bridegroom for um, be, for their marriage being a romantic one rather than an arranged marriage. And uh, as his wife sits uh, right next to him, which is a bit awkward, uh, he recounts how um, they were sort of forced together by their parents um, into an arranged marriage. And he envies uh, the, the couple for being able to uh, start out with uh, with the person that they were in love with and that they chose uh, for themselves, um, and of course that kind of sets up uh, the rest of the conflict throughout the movie um, and uh, uh, put, sort of puts him on his path to uh, to being a, a series of walking contradictions um, because when he gets home, uh, it becomes clear that he is. Uh, he and his wife are searching for a husband for their eldest daughter um, so that they can uh, put her into an arranged marriage with a uh, well-respected uh, gentleman. Um, yes, his grandfather was once the president of the Yokohama right. Chamber of Commerce. You know? <laughs> so it's like his ancestry even. I mean, that's almost as traditional as it gets. And it is quite a... You know, quite a uh, humorous little contrast, and I think uh, I think yeah. that's that's really the key here. This is this is an Ozu comedy. This is kind of return to the lighter themes, um, and quite a dramatic contrast from Tokyo Twilight, the last film we talked about, which really was, you know, dark and and wintry and and tragic and and you know had all the seeds of gripping melodrama. Uh, this here is a, a much lighter in tone, a, kind of a gentle satire almost, but with you know some serious ramifications based on the relationships within the family and the the fate of the young people in particular, and even the older folks uh, uh, kind of locked into their own marriages and habits and customs. Yeah, and in particular, I think the second half of this movie gets um, pretty pretty firmly. Uh, in, entrenched in the comedy genre, um, you know whether it's the uh, elaborate ruse, which we'll you know we'll get to um, that the friend of the daughter plays on the father, um, or uh, the his um, his subordinate um, at the bar um, pretending that he's not a regular. Uh, it it there's definitely some more serious themes in the beginning of this film, even though there are are sort of jokes peppered throughout 
but it, it turns pretty light um, by the end uh, until the the kind of emotional core of, of when his struggle kind of comes to uh, to a climax. Um, I absolutely adore this movie. I think that it's one of uh, Ozu's best films, and uh, I think it it fits in really nicely with uh, the rest of his kind of peak. Um, movies such as Late Spring and uh, Tokyo Story um, and kind of matches them with a with obviously that lighter tone um, but I think he's really uh, playing with the evolving uh, generational shift that's happening in Japan in the 50s and I think in a way this movie is more similar to uh, early spring than it is to late spring in that there there's a lot going on around the main story um, and even though unlike in, in early spring where it's a little bit more tangentially co connected in that you know an affair is not particularly uh, related to uh, his ennui at being a, uh, a daily worker. Um, here, it's it's completely connected to the kind of anecdotes and other encounters that uh, that Hirayama has uh, throughout the film. Um, but you do get this really nice portrait of different outcomes or different potentials uh, in the relationship between the father and the daughter in the late 50s in Japan and what could happen to Hirayama or you know what m might happen in the future um, and and I, I really like that about the movie because I, I do think it it does show both sides in that regard and uh, does not rest easily in any one direction in terms of who's right or um, you know how how strongly Japan should move into uh, a modern social system versus uh, sticking with tradition. Hmm, that's interesting. I I, I would have felt that it, it does move pretty strongly in the direction of subverting the father character. So I have to have to chat about that a little bit. Not to say I, I disagree with you. I just um, that's where I was going to lean, and now I'm curious what I'm what I'm missing on his end. <laughs> yeah, I think. Well, I mean, I think that clearly his arc is to um, recognize that he um, was wrong in what he did, um, but I don't think necessarily that that is to condemn the past and to cast it aside in any way. I think. Okay. Ozu is very um, sympathetic to the father figure in the film and understands the struggle that he is going through. Um, and at the same time, I, I do think he is often, obviously he's very overtly um, subverting the father figure in a lot of these scenes. But I think there's also real subtle... Uh, a real subtle subversion of, of him in that he's, he's frequently, um, he, he frequently has everything handed to him. There's, there's these sort of ellipses at the beginning or the end of certain scenes where he's, 
asking people to have tea in one room or there's there's just sort of these unnecessary conversations that he has where um, people are doing things for him. And even when he's talking about having the uh, the arranged marriage uh, to to the daughter, he's doing that as he you know takes off his clothes and, and lays them down on the floor for his wife to pick them up. Um, I think that's really crucial. This uh, he's an executive director. He's not just right. a father. He's not just you know the the you know patriarch of the family. He's a guy who really is deferred to all, all over. And, and he walks into the room. It's like oh, the important man has just entered the scene. Let's make sure he's well taken care of. Right. And and I think that's really essential to you know the, the whole arc of this movie because that's that's really who Ozu is focusing on the entire time it's this man's world and all the characters moving around in it and yet he's recognizing that he is approaching sunset you know he is you know beginning that fade out where you know he will always be respected and and revered and and taken seriously but he will not have as much control or the final say so on things as he's become accustomed to I think that this dawning uh, realization is is kind of the 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 essence of of where this story takes us, and and I love it as a as a yeah you know, I, I'm certainly not the kind of executive uh, you know privileged uh, male at the same level that he is, but I can still relate to that character, you know, and and recognize you know even like you know when one of my sons got married a couple years ago, I remember very distinctly. Uh, a conversation I was having with a couple uh, guy friends. I think one of them was a relative, one of them was just a friend, and it's like they were all, you know, one of them just said, well, this is our time to move off center stage. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I guess you're right. You know, this like the next generation is coming up and doing things a little bit differently. And and uh, as a guy who still thinks of myself as a young up-and-comer, <laughs> it's like a little reality <laughs> check, you know. Uh, no, no, time is marching on. Yeah, you know, this is, I, I loved this one too, just to throw in my initial reaction. Um, and, and there is, there's so much great humor. But the interesting thing is Hirayama would never consider himself at this in this film being part of a comedy. Um, to him, it's very tragic. I mean, this is, this is some serious stuff here because he's, he sees it almost as a, as a fall and um, a decline in, in his, not just in his, you know, pr- professional career or anything like that. He actually still has a lot of power there, but it, it's a decline that's happening right in his home under the things that he feels like he should have the most control over. And it's to him very devastating to, to watch this, this, um, these traditions that give him that power, that grant him the ability to remain in control and to kind of determine the lives of those, um, you know, within his domicile, those traditions are falling away. And I think it becomes much less about the traditions and much more about, well, how am I supposed to handle this? Because I, you know, ostensibly, I'm fine with young people making their own decisions unless it's contrary to me or unless it starts a fight. Um, I, I love that the 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 suitor for his daughter Setsuko isn't a bad person. He's actually a very deferential, good good man. Um, there's nothing absolutely terrible about him, though. Maybe he, you know, maybe his grandpa wasn't the president of the Chamber of Commerce. You know, there's still nothing really um, 
bad about it. It's not like she went on the other side of town and, and fell in love with a you know someone who completely against their society. I mean, this is a this is a kind boy who who is still deferential to authority to a degree. Um, so that you think the dad, he's not going to help Harry. I'm a build a dynasty. You know, he's not another Titan of industry or the son of a Titan of industry. And when you realize that that's where the crux is, you know, really isn't about his, his daughter marrying someone she loves. It's about, it becomes a battle of wills. And so even for me, David, as you're talking about your relation to this movie, I mean, I, I watch that and I'm like, how many fights do I get in with my kids where I'm like, you know, if I really step back, who cares what the outcome is? But dang it, I'm the one in control. <laughs> or it's a reflection gonna, on You how, are going to do yeah. my will because I don't want you to subvert me some other way later on. You know, you do not get that cookie and I'm going to stand by that. <laughs> I really like that it's not... Um, it's not simply that she is marrying someone else that uh, he didn't pick for her. Um, there, there are a lot of other things that trouble him. There, there's the fact that she didn't tell him uh, mm-hmm. that she was uh, interested in this man, and then that he didn't do the traditional go-between and give him time to think about it, and uh, in the in that kind of way. So it's not. And I think I think those things are more important to him. But Ozu doesn't make it s- simple. Which one of those things is the reason why he's holding back? And I do think you're right that it is that it is much more important to him that it wasn't done in a way that was uh, deferential to him, as opposed to, you know, I think if if, if those other avenues uh, had been pursued and it had been done in that way he would have been more open to her having a romantic marriage but i like the fact that it's not 100 percent straightforward that that's the reason why he's uh resisting this it, right. it makes it a little bit more complicated mm-hmm. and it's a consequence that the pace of life is picking up you know uh the suitor is being transferred next week and so he sort of has to, he he knows he's hustling things along he knows that he's supposed to have the go between, but there simply isn't time, you know, corporate demands are saying that you've got to go to a new office. And, you know, we kind of talked about <laughs> the new office and the, the power of the corporation in, in early spring. So I think your, your connection of those is pretty spot on Matthew. Um, so, so, you know, this is the larger society again, shifting around them so that even those old traditions can't not be followed because the conditions have changed. And that's his prosperity that he that has allowed him to have the kind of privilege that he has where he's in a position where he thinks he can dictate the 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 woman, uh, you know, the man, the man that's going to marry his daughter. He he's in that position because Japan in over the past 15 years has uh, been revitalized by this uh, modern economic upswing. So he, you know. It, it's the very thing that has put him in this position where he feels like he's, a, you know, he he's the king of, of the house that is, you know, subverting the traditions that he thinks are essential to, uh, you know, give give him the the due that he deserves. Well, and he's he can see himself as someone who's responsible for the progress and the change. You know, his decisions in the past have brought them where they are because they didn't have it easy all the time. His wife and he kind of reminisce a little bit about the past and you realize that he's done a lot to get them where they are. And so it's natural for him to think, 
you should still want my input. I, I am smart. I, I can help you through this. How, you know, and, and I like how that complicates things too, that it, you know, it is about his authority, but it also is about his genuine belief that I do know what's best. And, you know, in some ways he could be right in, in this particular one, you know, he's just overlooking a few things and, and um, letting his pride get in the way a little bit. But, you know, at the same time, there's there's no doubt he would have picked a good person for his daughter to marry. Um, you, you know, I wouldn't think he's not he's not quite like the dad, like Chishirio's uh, father character in in uh, Tokyo Twilight, where it's like, yeah, this I like this guy. I know he's a drunk and a louse and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But but, uh, you know, I, I, I like him. He's a good drinking buddy or whatever. You know, he this this uh, Hiriyama would probably do well by his daughter um, and to have again that taken away not just because it's taken away but because he he's worried about her ability to do this herself you know and maybe maybe with good purpose he's pro- I'm sure he's seen other other children run away and marry someone who it doesn't really work out I mean we all have um, where you're like man if you only would listen to your parents and there is kind of another storyline, and it does happen to involve Chishiryu's uh, character again, where his daughter has has left home because she loves somebody, and the the dad said, "No, you you do not get to choose your your mate," and so she's left and is living with this person now. And so, you know, he he's he's aware of the troubles and 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 you know just still feels relevant to being part of the decision making process. It's it, it it's. It really is wonderful, and I, I love how many different elements are coming together here with the wife, with Chishiryu's character, with the younger daughter, we haven't even brought up her yet, um, with his subordinate at work and all that comedy. There, it, it's, it's such a great look at all of these relationships and the, and the power struggles that go on between them and how it, how it affects them personally and their estimation of themselves. You, you get that sense from every character. Um, a sense of trying to measure up and not sure if they are. It's, it's beautiful. Yeah. There's two things I, uh, I want to point out, um, on the, the points that you just made, um, kind of, you know, Ozu always has these little words thrown in that I think are really key that, that are, uh, seem like throwaway lines, but I, I think are really important in this movie. Um, you know, when he goes to visit, uh, Chishu Ryu's, uh, daughter, um, and when Chishu Ryu goes to, to see, uh, his daughter, they both say the same thing about her, which is that she's happy somehow and uh, that she's doing well somehow. <laughs> they, you know, these people are genuinely confused as to how this could work out for people, that they would, that, that their, uh, you know, 21 year old daughter or however old they're supposed to be, would be able to pick the right mate for themselves and genuinely be happy is is completely foreign to them. And so, you know, and 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 also the fact that both of them are uh, ma- not marrying into wealthy families, that they may have to work for a long time, that they, you know, they're not going to be in a situation that's similar to the situation that these men have put their wives in. Um, they they're unable to see how that would be something that would make them happy, and I think that's you know where kind of the 
the Xeroxing of the American dream during the occupation really butted heads with the perceptions in Japan of what makes people happy, of, of what societies value in order to create, uh, you know, uh, um, a, a working society and a society that people are satisfied with enough to continue to perpetuate it. Um, and I, yeah. I think that is really uh, the uh, a key aspect. Yeah, this is kind of the uh, the effect of a society that's beginning to create a little bit more allowance to operate according to your emotions, your your feelings. I mean, the fact that relationships, marriages, and families would grow out of a, a romantic desire or attachment, I I assume was probably considered a very a kind of a vulgar or lower class way of arranging relationships um, that, you know, that the arranged marriage, the sensible marriage had, had more of the, the economic benefits that lead to prosperity and stability. Uh, but of course that also meant women adopting a much more subservient role. And, and you see so many evidences and we've already talked about how not only is, you know, he's just dropping his clothes on the floor and there's not a second thought that, you know, wife will come right up and dutifully scoop him up and, and take care of him. Uh, also, the scenes where the wife, played by uh, the wonderful Kinyo Tanaka, is listening to music on the radio. Do you guys pick up on that there and how she's just thwarted? Uh, I mean, he comes in and turns it off. They have their moment. She she actually kind of sits, sits up a little bit and, and deals it straight to him. And then he leaves the room and she turns the music and he comes back and barks at her. And it's just, you know, it, it is, it's, um, it's not exactly brutal, but it's, it's very domineering and, and, uh, you know, kind of, kind of rankles even just to watch it so bluntly portrayed. But I'm sure that that was not an unusual scene at all in contemporary Japan. And yet it's becoming just a little bit more unacceptable as, as the culture shifts underneath, uh, you know, underneath the surface. I adore the wife character in this movie. I'm, can, I both love her and am incredibly fascinated by um, her um, her arc in the film. And you know, she kind of, in a, in a certain way, reminds me of Edith Bunker from All in the Family. <laughs> yeah, just patiently biding her time and yeah, and, enduring and it would, all. And I think initially, you, she's. Uh, she, uh, you know, I don't mean simpleton in the sense of of being, you know, not intelligent, but she's very. Uh, she it doesn't seem like she has a lot going on under the surface, and it seems like she's just there to uh, run the household and to uh, you know raise the children. Um, but I think, uh, like Edith Bunker, eventually got in later seasons. Uh, it, there's there's a real depth underneath her and uh, just a true like love for her family and uh, you know she she's open-minded about this because the only thing that is important to her is that her kids are happy and that her husband is happy as well um, and yet she she doesn't uh, she doesn't suffer for fools I mean you know she I, I love the moment with the uh, with the inn owner when she uh when when the wife is is late to uh to sit down and, and talk with her 
and she says, oh, I had to go to the bathroom because I knew it was going to be a long conversation. <laughs> um, yes, yes, or, yes. Or, I, I mean, and then, and then her confrontation with her husband when, when her husband asks her to really tell him how she feels, and she just throws down his clothes and comes back and sits right down and tells him exactly the truth. And, you know, uh, she doesn't do it in a vindictive way. She does it in a way that she says, okay, if you really want to know what's going on here, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> and I, I think, yeah. you know, there's just a beautiful, um, it, you know, I guess it's the still waters run deep uh, cliche. Well, it's very there's measured. The, it's it's very yeah. direct, but it's tactful. I mean, she's not stepping out of line. She's right. not venting. She's no right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and I think that, you know, the other, the other kind of little, uh, little, line I wanted to mention um, is is in that that conversation with with the wife and the husband uh, on the bench uh, up, and you know I hate to keep beating the World War II drum on this box but we're gonna keep I'm gonna keep doing it it's there <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean I think that that scene is is crucial to you're talking about the little movie. vacation outing yes, there when they when they take the outing and they're they're talking about World War II and how they used to huddle, uh, you know, underground during the air raids. And the wife says that she was, that was, that was actually some of the, her happiest times. Um, and, and that's a moment for this guy to really realize I have devoted my life to this career, um, in order to make my wife and my daughters, I think comfortable, um, and, uh, you know, get them whatever they need, and have the light kind of life that I think that they want to have. Um, and that really doesn't mean anything to my wife if we're not happy in, you know, and together and, and, and a family, that's the most important thing to her. Um, and the other real crucial moment in that conversation is when, uh, Hirayama says that, uh, that he didn't like that time because there were so many arrogant people around and, <laughs> I, you know, I mean, I think the 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 contradiction there is obvious, um, but I but I do think it's an interesting point uh, also because um, there is this perception of the the grouping of kind of the militaristic mentality of uh, World War Two Japan and sort of 30s uh, pre pre war Japan with um, this dying, uh patriarchy tradition in uh, Japanese culture that uh, that there is that there are people in the society who are who are arrogant in the sense of believing that they are the heads of the society they know what's best for people and this is kind of the the last the final embers of that uh, of that fire um, and, and I, I mean, I, I just love moments like that in Ozu films because it's it, it seems like such a throwaway line, but I think it's so crucial to understanding what he's looking at in, in the larger narrative. Yeah, we've talked a lot about the family, um, you know, the relationship between, uh, you know, husband, wife, uh, father, mother and their children. How about how about the male bonding aspects of those those scenes at the beginning and end where it's the men sitting around the table pouring the sake, you know, uh, kind of bantering about their, their pet theories about, you know, which, which partner in a marriage uh, determines the sex of the child. And, and then, uh, Chishu Ryu's kind of, uh, 
you know, a poetic uh, a chant or song or whatever, you know, this kind of uh, battle, you know, battle cry, this this uh, poem about the, the, you know, the aging warrior. And it's, yeah, this is kind of a, you know, just an interesting portrayal of, of Japanese masculinity. Because I, I agree, Hirayama is not maybe the arrogant, blustering militaristic you know chest thumper that maybe he was referring to or thinking of in those pre-war years when those voices really you know set the tone and and ran society uh he's he he's prospered by you know a more dignified approach and and uh, a lot of his authority is is wielded you know with with kind of you know gentle but unmistakably you know uh, authoritative strokes he he is the man in charge but he's not necessarily flaunting it he's just assuming that it's understood and respected and it will be followed and uh the men that he associates with i think are pretty much cut from that same cloth but <laughs> you know i've got it on the screen that she should be right here saying you know we're getting old uh thinking that we're talking about our children at a reunion and the, yeah again the, the passage of these years uh, ever with us are the dreams of our youth you know uh these are you know these are deeply resonant themes that i think are really connecting with certainly men of ozu's age himself uh reckoning with the fact that uh you know, they, the things that they've gotten accustomed to are just no longer, or, or they're fading. They're not done altogether, but, uh, the times are definitely a changing. Yeah. And I think that's where the, this movie does have sympathy for the tradition, you know, that, that it's not just a situation where the better thing is coming and they've all got to get out of the way because they're the dinosaurs in the room. Um, you know, there's obviously sort of a an air of privilege around those moments, um, and of loss for, uh, you know, having having lost the war and sort of having uh, Japan taken down uh, an, quite a number of notches um, in the in the, the aftermath of the war. Um, but there's there's also just the the recognition of the passage of time and of the the idea that. You know, you you had your time, and now there's time for other people. And, and this comes up again in in Autumn Afternoon as well. This idea that you know this was this pivotal generation in Japanese history, um, and they had their moment, and then they didn't particularly seize the moment. But then they recreated that. You know, they they reemerged from from the darkness and, and, and built this society that now, uh, this incredibly powerful youth culture, which you guys have discussed, um, you know, in regard to other boxes like the Nikatsu Noir box, um, is here to take its place and they don't really have any time or concern for, uh, the ideas or even the people who are associated with that previous generation. No, I, I think it's, uh, it, it is, you're right. You know, I'm seeing now much more how you talked about the sympathy for for this generation, and and you're right. It is there. It's it's and and I, I love those scenes with the men all kind of gathering around. There's a little bit of that um, self deprecation in those scenes as well. It's like the moment where they can kind of, and I think it's a little bit of false modesty. It's a game that that men play where. 
you know, well, you know, I, I really don't have the rule of the roost at my house. And they kind of all chuckle and, you know, when in reality, they they know that that's exactly what they what they do have. And when it's um, challenged, an and when it's challenged in a serious way, like my daughter's not going to go along with my arranged marriage. Well, now now we're going to kind of throw it down a little bit here and kind of put our big well, foot and forward. Well, and they right? and they they even stray away from right. the group when that thing happens. Like um, Chishirio's character doesn't come right. to the wedding because it reminds him of his daughter. But there's also the sense of. I can't be with these yeah, men right now. Yeah, he's been a right bit now. emasculated and, and uh, for everybody's uh-huh. sake, for, for the rest of the men, they don't want to have to, you know, make awkward excuses or stumble over their words because they're probably thinking, hey, what's up with this guy? How's he not, ha- you know, he's loosened his grip, you know, he's he's not quite cutting it there uh, as a man's man ought to do. And uh, they don't want to make him grovel and have to explain or make excuses either. But at the same time... Yeah, you're you're losing out a little bit. It does a great job of showing these this particular group of men's um, kind of approach to uh, to their authority. You know, as you mentioned, you've got the generation they grew up in that it was a little bit more militaristic, and they seem to have masked all of their authority in a cloak of concern and of reasonableness. So, you know, even Hirayama does an excellent job. I can't remember the actor's name. We've seen him before. And he Um, was, as they describe as a matinee idol, he was a very familiar face mm -hmm. to these audiences and kind of getting to that dignified, uh, you know, gentlemanly stage of life, both as an on-screen presence and the character he's portraying. And I think I've I've read places, uh, you know, not necessarily from authoritative sources, who, who think that he looks a little stilted and... And, um, you know, don't think he does a great job in this film. I think he does a tremendous job because he's able to show he's able to show somebody who recognizes that the way that I can exert my force is to look like I'm not. You know, it's it's more terrifying when he's trying to speak calmly. He looks like someone who is is reasonable and calm and who might burst at any moment. You know, you're worried. You actually do kind of worry about the potential for for a violent outburst, because he he knows how to bring his calmness right to the brink before he really you know pulls back, and that's that's the way that they that these guys seem to to um, exert their will and, and kind of see their their way of 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 I don't want to say like I mean it is about masculine power but there is a lot more to it as Matt said um but it, it's kind of their that just their way and so they're able to go and joke about it in in you know these these little um meetings that they have together um and they're, they're supposed to be seen as someone who calmly handles situations and and deals with these things um, as firmly as they need to, and all of that's kind of falling apart here too. I I, I just I think he does a fascinating job of of showing um, his reasonableness and his his concern for his children, and how those can be seen as masks for some uh, some more selfish concerns too. Um, but at the same time, he does a great job of showing that there are moments when he it is genuine concern for his family. 
It, there's there's really just, just so much going on. Uh, any thread I seem to start to, to, <laughs> to grab onto to follow, I realize that there are a lot of other directions it goes. Um, <laughs> so it's not like a single strand or anything like that. I mean, and and I think with every character too. Um, again, the youngest daughter, uh, Hisaku, she's a fascinating character in her own right, even though she looks like a, the most tangential side character there there is, but she's actually the first of his family that we really meet other than his wife. I mean, she comes into the room in that really bright pink shirt um, saying she wouldn't want to have an arranged marriage. And this is a great moment to see Hirayama isn't concerned about his authority because he just discounts her. He's like, is that right? Hmm. And he's really just trying to get her to, to go away almost. Um, you know, he's pleasing her for a minute and it, it's, it's like, I'll, I'll give you this. I'm not worried about that at all. He just doesn't take her seriously. Exactly. When it gets time to it, he will he will assert his paternal you know decree and and that'll be that. But in the in the meantime, have your little fantasy. That's fine with me. But she is. She's kind of dressed like a bobby soxer. You know, she's a she's a she's a very westernized uh, you know pretty young thing, little teeny bopper there, and and uh, without but without necessarily drawing a lot of attention to it. That's just how she's dressed, and she's a prosperous daughter of a prosperous family. Well, that's what she's trying to do. She's trying not to draw attention to herself. She recognizes that her sister's fighting this battle um, that, ha- that has the, the consequences will will affect Hisaku as well. You know, and so she's very attentive throughout and she p- throws her little jabs in like this first one with her dad. I wouldn't want to have an arranged marriage. She's watching the wall and she's trying to see w- various ways that it's going to, to start to tumble down. And yeah, she's a little bit more naive. Um and all of that. But I love how even that character, you can see an inner life and you can see it all kind of being portrayed on there. I mean, it, all of the characters have their little inner life and struggles that they rarely talk about directly. Um, you know, the conversation is is so masking about it all. Let's talk about some of the other uh, characters. Uh, we, we've talked a little bit about Kinyo Tanaka, the wife, uh, the the husband. But uh, how about uh, yeah? How about some of the side players? I you know the the little comedic scenes in the bar. Uh, Hirayama's little flunky there as he's kind of going to look for uh, his friend's missing daughter. I, I I just really loved the the you know the. This is this is another look at this the the life of the salary man, you know, kowtowing to his boss and having to kind of mask his his after work <laughs> <Right>. escapades. <laughs> uh, the conversation when when they get to the bar, and he, you know, and Hirayama recognizes that this guy has been to Mr. this Kato, bar before. You're so quiet tonight. So funny. Like he's like, well, so you've been here before. Why why didn't you? Tell me yeah, where. He's, well, he's acting like he doesn't know. They're going all through all the yeah. side streets. To... <laughs> yeah, it's it's just so funny. And then the way he transforms on the next night when when he you know feels like he can be comfortable. My boss has um, no business in a know, dump it, like and this. It, again, <laughs> peanuts, peanuts. Yeah, and and it's it, and again, it, it seems like it's just this uh, throwaway um, comedic moment. Uh, this concept that from this, uh, you know, side character, but you see 
that within this one character, the war between the tradition and the modern, you know, he's, he's fighting to, uh, to advance in a system, in a corporate system that has been created with this deferential respect to, uh, the bosses and to the the elder uh, statesmen, uh, you know, in in the companies, um, and yet he's really just this young kid that, uh, you know, if he if he didn't have this job, he might be playing cards in a in a back alley somewhere. Yeah, like so some that, some of know, the again, scramblers that we saw in Tokyo Twilight, the mahjong yeah, parlor Twilight, and all that. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, so, so again, it's 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 these it's these little moments that seem like they're just tossed in there to you know for a laugh, but it, but continue to reinforce the themes that that Ozu has established elsewhere. Yeah, any other characters or any other little side bits that uh, caught your interest here? I think it would be interesting to maybe talk a bit about the film itself and Ozu's transition to color, but maybe we can kind of move through the story elements or have we pretty well covered that? You think? Well, I guess that we haven't talked much about the inn uh, owner and her daughter. I mean, her daughter is obviously the uh, big star uh, in the movie, and why they, they the, the Yukiko character, who really only has a few yeah. scenes. They're they're very important scenes, very well done, and she right. is you know rather beautiful. She was kind of the the face of the moment in Japan, and I think Shochiku had this actress on loan for one picture, right? Right, and and I I mean, it's she's kind of a um, a uh, I don't want to say entirely Noriko character because she's not she does have still the modern slant of the daughter uh, of Hirayama's daughter as well, but she is a bit more of a um, you know she she's saving herself. Uh, you know, she's got kind of that chaste uh, perspective um, and, you know, isn't sure she, she she's even interested in getting married because she would rather help. You know, she feels obligated to help her mother take care of the inn. Um, but the scene in which she, you know, basically describes to Hirayama his daughter's situation, but pretends that it's her situation is just so delightful. And, it, you know, it's one of the the kind of. I think biggest laugh out loud moments in Ozu's catalog because it's just you, you, the first time you see this film, you don't expect that to be where it's going. You expect this to be just another one of the situations in which Hirayama is being hypocritical and 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 saying one thing to his family and saying another thing to other mm -hmm. families, um, and yet she turns on, the tables on him immediately. And the look on his face is just perfect. I mean, I think he's spectacular in this movie. Um, and, you know, it's just one of those situations where he realizes that he's been had. And uh, he doesn't even, he's not even sure what to do about it because nobody has ever played him like this before in his whole life. And, um, you know, it's just such a great moment. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that stiltedness or that, that reserve, that kind of stiffness is, is really essential to the character because that's that's kind of how his life has has shaped him and and now to be sort of upbraided in a very you know really a, a very sweet and affectionate way I mean, because she's not like ha ha i got you no she's like oh this is a trick and i'm just you know she's just very gleefully revealing to him to to him uh in a very winsome way that he really can't take offense at he just has to sort of sit there and look in the mirror yeah, right? and she's not calling no. him out she's not saying oh you said one thing what, like, no there's no vengeance about? there's you know, no like, vic she's, vitriol yeah right? she's she's just moving on she's like well he's gonna have to 
accept this now that he's given the and game And it's away. almost like she just anticipated that it would work that perfectly. Like she sees something in him. It's like, as long as I can just make it plain to him, that, that will settle it because the hypocrisy is that apparent and... And uh, and of course she she doesn't just confront him. She's like, okay, you approve of her marriage now. I'm going to make the phone call. So it's kind of like, yeah, she's kind of just accelerating things right along there. <laughs> just runs <laughs> exactly. off to do it. <laughs> and of course, uh, mother and, and daughter are like, yes, we got it. That's great. Let's go. And and uh, and, and and then of course that does advance the the uh, you know the the plans so that uh, Hirayama is somewhat boxed in by circumstances you know, he he tries to withdraw says well i just won't attend now you just have to do what you got to do but uh you know he is finally coaxed and persuaded to to do the right thing and uh yeah but without a smile well, right right well, i mean he's only going to go so far but i, I but i and, and then there's <laughs> that that last little sequence uh uh of just him riding on the train and it's a, such a critical moment that it even made the cover of the dvd even though <laughs> not a word is spoken and and it's really just a little uh you know epigram at the end of the film but it really is to, i guess that's to me where this is a, a film ultimately that you know like so many of those who's great films is it's about self-realization it's about just taking stock of your own person and and this particular moment whatever it may happen to be telling you and reconciling with it and and this is you know in in this case this is a moment where you know he is at a, a later stage of life transition he's realizing things about himself about his family about his society uh, about what his past has been what his future will be and that's really what ozu is constantly sort of challenging us with is 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 to you know be alert be aware of your moment and and the implications of it uh whatever circumstances you might be in and his films are just these series of mild epiphanies and of course that's why we love him so much and this is still a really relatable moment you know i i, I you know i think it would be very easy to say oh we don't have arranged marriages in the u.s anymore so there's nothing in this story that can apply to our well, society there, there are arranged but... marriages there are certainly plenty of you know traditions that are still ex- extant i i mean I, I have them in my own family and circle of friends so not in the maybe same formality but there are certainly pressures about who we're going to get with even if it's not marriage yeah well, that's Go ahead, what yeah. i mean yeah i mean what I, yeah no i mean well, well i mean my my parents my mother is jewish and married a farm uh a farmer from ohio uh, you know protestant farmer from ohio and her parents were uh furious about it um, and that was, you know, in the 70, in the early 70s. Um, and, you know, there's still people today, uh, you know, parents who have to uh, reconcile the fact that their uh, that their child is marrying somebody of the same sex. I'm sure there will be conflicts uh, when I'm older with my kids when they get married. You know, whatever the the new uh, controversy will be. So and and you know you look at a film like Guess Who's Coming mm-hmm. to Dinner uh, with the with a racial aspect to it. So this is not something that uh, that you can look at and say, oh, this is a, a historical time capsule. Um, the, I, I, I find his his arc to uh, be very uh, relatable and and you know I, I know many people 
uh, older people in my life who have had to uh, to come to terms with this, and some of them have, like he eventually does in this film, and some of them have not. Um, so, I, you know, I think it's a it, it's still a very relevant um, subject. And indeed, well, let's talk about the film itself. You know, we've already alluded to the fact that, excuse me, this is is Ozu's first color film. He was kind of. Uh, somewhat implored somewhat directed to make this color because of the uh the actress uh whose name escapes me at the minute moment uh fuchiko yamamoto i guess is her name she plays the character of yukiko and because they really wanted to capitalize on on her role in this film and and her popularity as a, a kind of a, a beautiful um you know model and, and and face of of japanese culture of the time uh ozu you know I don't know if there was reluctance or if he somehow, uh, you know, uh, saw the opportunity and seized it. But my goodness, what a what a revelation Ozu and Color really is. And of course, you know, I think we've we've watched Ozu and Color ourselves. Now, Trevor, maybe you have not yet had the chance. Is this your first Ozu and Color film? Yeah. 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 These three in order, the way that we're right. going to discuss yeah. them. So, what'd you think? Um, oh, wow. <laughs> I. I, I agree with you. I, it, it was it was amazing. I and and I've heard people kind of talk about about this and you know that maybe Equinox Flower is one of the best color debuts, um, and th- it, it it really truly could be. I mean, I was I was really shocked at how how vibrant um, these films could look, and just how how well he he uses the whole color palette throughout i mean just talking about all of them i mean i was i was delighted through through all of all of them and i'm you know to the point where i was almost like oh crap i didn't finish all of his black and white ones it's gonna be a little bit tough maybe even to go back and see those and i'm sure when i do i'll you know be like oh yeah but we're okay <laughs> ozu in black and white is still amazing um but where i thought wow these I'm, I'm glad i have two more of these in color i mean specifically thinking about that point the color of them is is fantastic it was it was it, it was beautiful i mean from the bright pink shirt that um, his, his younger daughter comes in wearing um, in their conservative home i mean he knows what he's doing and uh, reading on the criterion form forum michael kirpan um, talked a little bit about this and he, he you know he has a an argument that ozu didn't it wasn't that he was against color or you know conservative it was that he wanted to make sure that agricolor had you know film stock that could do what he wanted it to do and when he kind of was was shown that it could he he embraced it fully he had a cinematographer who was willing to to walk him through it and teach him um but yes it it just shows how mindful uh ozu is to so many details in these films and it it just it's amazing to me what what all goes on here oh yeah uh, I mean, I agree with everything Trevor just said. It's uh, I, I am so impressed with the fact that he had been making movies for so long and, and was initially resistant to color and was so effortlessly able on the first film that he made in color to incorporate the use of color into his style in such a quintessentially Ozu way. Um, you, you know, if you, if you watched all of his films in black and white 
a hundred times and knew read everything there is to read about Ozu, you know, and could mathematically chart out how Ozu would use color, I really think he would arrive at Equinox Flower. I mean, it's it, you know the 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 placement of color, the use of fabrics and wallpaper and texture and objects that you know, he the uses tea kettles, and, the beer bottles yeah, yeah. yeah the, the cups, i mean the teapot yeah, okay. the teapot is just uh, the tea kettle is is spectacular i mean uh, and the way he uses the tea kettle to map out the the uh, the house you know he's got the tea kettle in one place in one shot and then he <laughs> moves to a different room and he still has the tea kettle in the same place so you know where that hallway is in relation to the room that you were just in um it it's i mean it, it's just stunning and um you know I, i've i've seen this was my third time watching this movie and there's still a, a shot that makes me gasp every time you know it's just and it's a different shot every time but like this time it was the it was the the alleyway oh the the, that first time I mean, yeah at the beginning yeah. and the luna bar and all I that mean, stuff, it's right. just mm -hmm. yeah it's remarkable it's really it's really um it's really fun to watch and um and and it's nice to to feel like you're in um in the hands of somebody that uh you feel confident made every choice very consciously and i think with with his use of color, it's really nice to not, to know that, you know, oh, it wasn't just that the costume uh, person had that kimono for that day. He picked out that fabric. He wanted that to be part of this shot um, specifically. And I, I think watching his color films makes that all the more rich because um, it's it's really remarkable what he's able to do with his compositions uh, with this added I technique. Yeah, I think that, that this is where that's just starting to dawn on me was in, in watching these three, um, a lot of those uh, th those aspects of control that you're talking about really did become more apparent to me to where I thought, wow, I can now see why someone like Matt, you know, who, who's seen a lot of films can consider Ozu the greatest of all directors because of of this attention to these details that really do add to this world and and really create a place where you're very pleased to go you know almost regardless of what's happening to the characters you're pleased to go and meet them and that kind of drifted into and man this attention to control of the exter exterior shows again just how much control ozu had with the characters themselves and with the actors and telling them don't overplay this or do it this way or sit this particular way, you know, and, and and that he's, I just, I still, I can't imagine having the ability to foresee how all these elements would come together in such a beautiful, um, provocative, um, sympathetic, um, loving, and yet exploratory um, manner in a film. I, I, I just, it all comes together in a way that's like magic to me. And I can see that he's doing it on purpose, but I, I can't imagine um, knowing that on well, the outset before actually it, seeing it. It's quite magical the more you learn about Ozu's process as well, because, you know, again, you know, all the cinematic tricks of dissolves and zooms and pans, I mean, he, he uses none of that. These are all just straight cuts, just shots, you know, almost invariably static. There's motion within the picture, of course, but, but often there's characters 
sitting fairly still and and these are just you know a series of brilliant compositions but what makes it even more remarkable is that Ozu's already kind of visually mapped all these out in his mind's eye. He's he's really thought through, and 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 he was very well known for saying, you know, from the script stage before sh- anything's been shot, this this film will be one hour and forty five minutes long, and that's very much like almost to the minute how this film comes out when everything's edited and put together. So, you know, uh, I don't know how many takes he did. I don't know if you know if if he was a, a retaker in the same way that. You know, somebody like Brisson was notoriously, you know, 40, 50, 60 takes, but, but he knew how these scenes would fit together and he, and he pretty much had them all scoped out and then he just went about and did it. He shot it, put it together pretty much the way he had envisioned it. Uh, and, and that was the movie right there. And it's, 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 it's an alchemy. It's, it's an amazing wizardry that he's ex- exercising here and, um, doing it just over and over. And of course that's where he, in that self-deprecating way, I'm just the old tofu maker, but he was just so brilliant at it. I could understand why he never felt the need to, you know, go into new stylistic directions for novelty's sake. He he had arrived at this at this high level of mastery, and within this uh, self-imposed limited vocabulary, he found incredible things to express and. And uh, there is this, there is this world, this the sense of comfort and assurance. You know, again, seeing those alleys that we've seen so many in so many films over the the decades prior, but now they're lit up, and now the signs just have a newness to them, or there's a, a you know a, a refined texture to the screens and the walls and the and the wall hangings and 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 the places, these environments uh, that now jump off the screen at us in these in these bright colors even the landscapes and the skies uh same beautiful compositions you know trees blowing in the breeze and and hillsides and clouds passing over but just getting that extra texture of of uh, of of color and and you know the way the reds and the greens peek through and and catch our eye it's it's just all so pleasing and you know, there's a lot of great, beautiful color cinematography out there and, and color films, even from this era. But there's just something so wonderful about uh, stepping into Ozu's world now that it's in color for these last six films of his career. I, you know, it, it is. It, there's just a sense of peace that comes over me as I, w- whether it's rewatching a movie. Uh, well, they're all rewatches at this point, but uh, you just feel like you're just stepping into this very comfortable zone. Uh, not complacent, but but still very uh, a, a very soothing uh, place to be, even when sometimes the events going on are emotionally turbulent. Uh, I was going to say, I have a quick kind of like question on this. The title itself almost seems to refer more to color th- to oh, me yeah. than to anything thematic in the story. You know, almost all of the other ones that we've we, that I've watched. Um, you know, as many times as they use a season and, you know, yeah, sure, this one uses an event in a in a season with the equinox. Um, I can figure out kind of why he's going with that particular title. Equinox Flower, on the other hand, I can get it a little bit, but then I'm like, no, I feel like almost this is more like a, a burst of, of vibrancy and color 
um, into the film rather than an actual thematic thing going on. I'm not sure. Maybe I'm overlooking something, and maybe this isn't even the actual. No, it is. Uh, it Japanese is. title is it? Okay. Well, Matt, I. Yeah. Well, I think it's. Yeah, I think it's probably a true. I mean, the the move from uh, you know from one side of the sun to the other uh, is 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 probably a uh, you know a reference to yeah. the shift in tradition but i do think that there is something to be said for that you know from the perspective of a flower i mean obviously there's still uh, a seasonal reference there so it you know all of ozu's films kind of deal with change so in a way you can kind of sub out some of the titles for other titles pretty easily um but i think yeah i, I mean i wouldn't be surprised if that was was related to it um you know he he wrote this with a with a novelist um sort of concurrently with the novelist writing um the book version of it yeah um so you know i don't know how how involved uh, they they were in terms of deciding that or you know uh, um, i actually don't even know if, if he knew this was going to be in color while mm-hmm. he was writing the script I, I believe so well there is there are some um kind of mythic uh, uh, legends associated with the Equinox flower. I'll put a link in the show notes to this source, but uh, the Equinox flower is a very specific uh, species. It's a red spider lily, so it's a very bright red flower with these kind of you know spindly little, they look like spider legs sticking out. Uh, I'm kind of going off this website here. They usually bloom near cemeteries around the autumnal equinox and are associated with death. The popular Japanese name Higanbana, which is the actual title of the film, means the other shore of the Sanzu River, uh, kind of the flower of the afterlife. They're ominous flowers that grow in hell and guide the dead to their next reincarnation. They're often used in funerals. So there's a, definitely a sense of, of passage of something dying and something ushering us onto the the next phase or the next uh, change. It's a symbol of reincarnation. Uh, They symbolize loss, longing, abandonment, and lost memories. Uh, So yeah, uh, one of the, yeah, so so there there may be some uh, more to it than just, oh, isn't this a pretty flower of the season of the year? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, and and again, for simple-minded people like Trevor, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, just just the 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 you know the kind of darkness of that perception of the movie, the that approach to the movie that there's that there's this you know final event hovering over the father um, as his world changes around him, um, but at the same time it's one of Ozu's most light and sort of confectionary films that that he made in this later period. Yeah. Um, the, the one other thing I wanted to say about the color is just the kind of the contrast of what is somewhat of a muted palette through through a lot of this film with the pops of color um, inside of it. And, you know, before he, he started making color movies, he kind of derided um, color as um, being too much of a good thing uh, that, uh, you know, he compared it to tendon, which is um, like tempura over rice, like fried shrimp or um, over rice. And I think, uh, you know, that was his solution to that issue, you know, and I, I think it it just works so beautifully and, and is so easy on the eyes. You know, I mean, I love a, a good Powell Pressburger Technicolor uh, extravaganza as much as uh, the yeah, next just guy. A, but I, a I different think, type of artistry, yeah, really. Just, mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I do think that it, that is part of what makes it so comforting. You know, if the if the whole film had been 
splashed in in reds and bright blues and greens it, it wouldn't have have had nearly the same um impact but also it it, it wouldn't get hit that melancholic mode uh, mood that is so characteristically ozu well yeah uh were you gonna say something trevor Oh, I was going to say, is there anything bad about this film? I mean, we I think our case is that this film is pretty much perfect. <laughs> well, Do you know what you I know, mean? I, and I'm not saying that tongue-in-cheek yeah. entirely, and I don't expect us to find something. But really, I mean, it feels like all of the elements just work together I I personally Perfectly. feel like Ozu is pretty much unassailable at this stage of his career. You know, I, I mean, I, I I will just write come right out and say it. I I just feel like he is so on his game and so. Um, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. You 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 can you can find things, and I mean, I can't say myself. Oh, here's how I I would improve this movie. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's you know, it's it's like uh, encouraging the Zen master to throw a little razzle dazzle into his act. It's like no, no, he he is he is at this, you know, he's at this altitude that I can only aspire to, and I just sort of sit back and in admiration, you know. Now maybe not everybody's going to find these movies equally entertaining or enthralling, and and there's certainly plenty of room to say. I, I have a special fondness or affection for this film or that. Uh, there's certainly variety. I mean, the film we're going to get into now, A Good Morning, is another kind of variation of this uh, lighter side of Ozu. And it is very interesting um, that, you know, the late Ozu set as an eclipse set, to me, seems overall pretty heavy. <laughs> um, because the other two films that we're going to be talking about you know, in our next episode are definitely they've got a powerful sense of gravity to them but uh, good morning is definitely uh known as one of his lighter more whimsical films um uh, especially from this period and and he, and then uh, floating weeds certainly has quite a bit of humor uh and and kind of surprising paradoxical juxtapositions thrown into it as well so putting those two films into the sequence kind of almost changes my perception a little bit watching them all in order kind of in this close sequence uh that ozu definitely had a lot of a lot more humor um and and gentle ribbing going on uh of the people around him including his own peers and contemporaries uh but like i say late autumn and the end of summer really there, there's some there's some grim <laughs> stuff going on there but we'll save that for next time yeah um so i, I don't know yeah, this is a light yeah. episode. There's so much joy and vibrancy in all sure. of these films. And even when they touch on something, um, you know, a little bit more sad or serious, I, I, don't, I can't, I, I probably should go back and look, but I can't think of another um, episode I've prepared for that gave me as much just pure yeah. smiling delight yeah. as this one. Matt, did you have any critiques of Equinox Flower before we <laughs> move <Yeah. on? laughs> Well, you know, I think that there are fair criticisms of the movie that could be made that I, I personally don't agree with, but I think that they're fair. Um, I, you know, I could see feeling like some of the asides are unnecessary. Um, you know, the, the conversations between the men don't advance the plot in any particular way. I think that they kind of add oh, yeah. texture and make the film more interesting. 
Yeah, David David's, uh, said earlier, I think, that those are almost central to some of the things he gets out of it. So Yeah, and I, I mean, I definitely can see that. But in the same way that um, the, the no play in, in late spring goes on a little too long for some people, you know, if you're not kind of on the same wavelength as Ozu, you, you might not get as much out of those moments as you do out of the rest of the film. Um, I, I, I think probably the most... Uh, legitimate complaint would be that the 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 sheer number and variety of w- ways in which Hirayama encounters uh, children and father and fathers dealing with marriage in the movie is a bit contrived you know I mean it's just all of his friends are having all of these very unique and interesting problems all, all at the same time um, it just you know I could see people feeling like that's you know a little much um but again i don't i don't agree with it just because i think it's done so naturally and i think you know one of the problems that i didn't mention about tokyo twilight that i some, uh, kind of have is that there's a lot of exposition in the movie and you know it doesn't feel as sort of naturally progressing um as uh, some of ozu's other movies and i think this film is a perfect example of that there's the, the way that the backgrounds of all of the characters and the, and that the conflicts are established, um, it, you know, is revealed to us is so effortless. And, you know, it, it makes it makes even those moments that feel a little bit too coincidental um, really feel natural. And like they're, you know, you're just living in this world and experiencing this variation on a theme. Um, other than that, this is... Uh, I mean, I, I can't, I can't, uh, unless you don't like Ozu, um, I can't imagine not liking this movie. I mean, it's just pure delight. Uh, and I mean, it, it's, it's easily my favorite in this box. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I could gush about it for another hour, but well, well let's go ahead and turn our attention uh, just briefly because these are again probably films that might even be much more familiar to a lot of our listeners. Uh, uh, good morning, we've already kind of uh, launched into that just a little bit. Uh, pretty delightful film, very uh, child youth oriented. Uh, another kind of uh, evidence of Ozu's shift to. Uh, you know, turning his gaze upon the younger generation and uh, these really uh, delightful kids. Um, I had the pleasure of rewatching it this week with my daughter-in-law. Um, uh, her husband is working a summer internship down in Chicago, so they're kind of doing a little bit of uh, you know uh, long-distance uh, commuting back and forth. But so she's by herself during the week, and we had her over for dinner and. She uh, she actually saw my Donald Ritchie Ozu book uh, sitting on the little stack in our in our living room there, and she says, "Oh, what's this about?" And so I was talking to her a little bit, and so we decided just to pop in Good Morning, which worked very conveniently for my podcast prep and rewatching and all of that. Mm-hmm. And she was just really charmed by this film. Uh, I don't think she's ever seen any of his films before. She's probably heard him referred to because my kids have have seen this and and uh, and all that. But uh, it was really fun watching it with her, and of course my wife is there as well, and we just enjoyed. So I, I had kind of a vicarious experience of encountering Ozu for the first time through the eyes of my daughter-in-law, and she just laughed at these kids and and the and the, and the also the the little uh, gossipy housewives, the the little touches of of. Uh, 
kind of meddling and minding your own business and jumping to conclusions and letting rumors fly out of control. I mean, these are these are accessible characters who are even to people who are pretty new to this era of watching Japanese film. Uh, you know, Katie was able to latch right on to it, and, and she's pretty bright, anyways. And, and you know, she certainly has a very broad grasp of culture and literature. I certainly want to sound like I'm talking down to her, but it was just a, a real treat for me to to see how quickly she latched onto this film and, and enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah. It's, it's nice to hear you're watching it with, with, um, you know, your kids or, uh, you know, your daughter-in-law, because as I watched it by myself, I thought, well, my kids would love this. <laughs> I don't, yes. you know, I watched the Tati set with them and they, they found so much delight in that. And I thought that this is, somewhat on that same wavelength. I mean, just even the mu- the music, the attention to the architecture, the just the fun of it all. I mean, it, it, there's quite a bit of difference as well, but there's just, it's like going into that world again. And, um, you know, I didn't watch it with them, uh, but I was happy that the next day, one of my sons said, hey, dad, um, were you were you watching? Um, and and he didn't say Tati, but w- one of your movies again. <laughs> and, you know, he recognized just the sound of it that he it was maybe something that he might want to be a part of. Um, I'm not sure when it'll be right. He this one was only the the the, the five year old, so <laughs> I don't know how much of it you'll really get. Well, you know, but, he might learn some tactics um, for getting that know, next someday. video game system or whatever other <laughs> little. <laughs> right? Maybe I shouldn't show it to them. <laughs> I'll turn into the father in Equinox Flower. <laughs> yeah, my, my son, who just turned six, is, uh, actually sat with me for, for a few of the Ozu films that I've watched recently, um, including um, bits and pieces of Good Morning. He's not able to kind of sit through all it's of It's still a bunch with the uh, subtitles and, I, and all have, that, yeah. Yeah, I have to read the subtitles to him, um, although sometimes he doesn't even want me to read the subtitles. He just wants to kind of observe what's happening. And there's a lot you can uh-huh. just watch um, through the body language. And yeah. The, yeah, and especially with the yeah. two kids. And the voice sure. tones, too. Um, you know, we were remarking on that. Oh, you know, the housewives are talking to each other. It's like you don't even need subtitles. <laughs> you can hear every little yeah. catty thing that's well, being said, it, you know, in the inflections. As we learn, it isn't so much about what they're saying. It's about the mannerisms. I mean, you know, the, the conversations can be completely empty and all those um, just uh, pleasantries, which is hilarious in this film, and, and how, how quickly the, the kids caught on to that and disregard it entirely. I, mean, I love how they, they don't pay attention to what's being said so much as how it's being said. Like when the father, I will take this back. I'm pretty sure he's joking. Yeah, he's got a smile on <laughs> his know, face. The little, little one. He's got a little yeah, bit of a smile. Yeah. And Chishiryu does a delightful <laughs> job of, of being the stern, um, but somewhat joking and, and excited dad for that moment. It, it, I don't know. It, I don't know how much you want to get into it, but it, it, it was... It, this was my first time um, going through it. I've listened to you. I mean, oh, David, yeah. you you mentioned this really early on in, in Criterion Cast podcasting. Oh, waiting for the Blu-ray um, as one you'd love to oh, see yeah. an upgrade. Yeah, for, uh, you, yeah. You, you presumably have not seen the DVD to the point. Have you? Well, that was deliberate oh, because terrible, of your yeah. um, your pleas for an upgrade. <laughs> I was like, well, I don't really want to watch this without yeah. that because. You know, it sounds delightful. It sounds like this might also be significant um, uh, hurdle to get over to really be able to enjoy it. Fortunately, the new Blu-ray is uh, beautiful. I mean, I've said that word a few times. Uh, it's stunning. 
Well, Matt, you've had a chance to reevaluate. I, <laughs> I posted your uh, criterion on the brain review. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Hey, yeah, I've been there, buddy. <laughs> I, I know yes, what it's like. It's not, yeah. quite, <laughs> it's not quite as embarrassing as my late spring review, but it's pretty bad. Um, no, I mean, I think yeah, just just uh, for people who – please don't go read it. But basically uh, what I said was that um, – that, uh, you know, it was really, it was in the early 2010s and when I first really started to fall in love with Ozu and Good Morning felt so different from the film, previous films that I had seen. I had, I had not watched, um, the, uh, the Eclipse films. I was really just focusing on the spines at that time. So going from, you know, Tokyo Story to, uh, Good Morning, it, it, it's a bit yeah, it jarring. Yeah, like this is a cartoon um, if you comparison, haven't, yeah. Yeah, if you haven't filled in, you know, the, the other films, um, it's it's very surprising. Um, uh, I, this is, you know, this is still not kind of in my top five Ozu or however you want to rank them. Um, but it, I still think it's a, a great, great movie. I love it so much. And um, I'm Trevor, I'm really glad that you brought up Tati because I, I think there's there's so much Tati in this film. But I think that really opens up the door um, to seeing uh, Ozu as, in a lot of ways, in my opinion, more similar to a director like Tati than he is to, um, you know, uh, Brisson or Dreyer that he's traditionally um, been um, compared to. Um, you know, I I see that as almost like a Catholic reading of Ozu, which seems just yeah. off to me uh, for somebody that has nothingness on their gravestone. <laughs> um so I, I, to me, the the you know the Tati connection, and I think actually David Cairns makes the the uh, connection as well in the new visual essay um, on mm -hmm, the desk, which mm -hmm. is really great. Um, you know, I I see both of them as kind of social observationists, and um, really they take uh, they take uh, the, this natural world and they create um, almost a funhouse version of it, and. He, he's really doing that here and he there's so much um, there's so much playing with um, consumer culture obviously and then just the 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 general pleasant trivialities of life um, and the the way that he weaves in the misunderstandings between the housewives and uh, into the uh, story of the kids who won't talk because they uh, want a television set um, it's so effortless and, uh, you, you know, you, you just, you can't even see the machinery behind it that he, that creates this misunderstanding and any other director, I think would have the big wacky scene at the end where everybody's misinterpreting everything and it turns into a farce and then they all realize that they were mistaken and they laugh and shake hands and go on their merry way. And, uh, Ozu is, is not interested in climaxes like that at all and the way it's resolved is very very natural and, and just so ozu and i i really love this movie um i i watched um i rewatched i was born but this week as well just because i hadn't seen it in in years and uh you know it's often this is often referred to as a remake of that and i don't think that's entirely true but i do love watching them together because the shift from the reasons why the kids don't eat and I was born, but, um, you know, which have to do with authority and, um, you know, uh, holding your, basically holding the patriarchy in high esteem, um, to hear where they're, they've got the, um, the, you know, they want a TV, um, and they're tired of people being, uh, 
meaning, uh, you know, being wasteful in their language in order to carry on with society, basically. Uh, it's just, it, it's a great contrast between the J Japan in the, in the early 30s and Japan in the late 50s. So I really love um, seeing these two movies together yeah, as well. Yeah, I, I think your, your idea of uh, Ozu as a social observationist, really, that, that is much more, he's not so much remaking movies. I mean, Floating Weeds, we can maybe talk a little bit about that because that is a straight-up remake. But I don't really think Ozu thought about, you know, I'm rebooting the franchise. <laughs> you know, that, that was certainly not his his approach to uh, uh filmmaking, but he he saw common themes and and so he would he would bring those out of his drawer so to speak and say, "Okay, let's have another talk about uh generational transitions of, of parents leaving elder or children leaving their elderly parents behind." Uh you know the 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 pressures uh, and and shaping forces of marriage relationships, uh, the career mans, et cetera. Well, and so he's just talking about what what about youth? What where are kids at? And and you know, and I was born, but which uh, I also we watched kind of uh, excerpts scenes with with Katie the other night as well because I wanted to give her some of that context as well. But uh, you know, it's it's about you know the respect for the father, the dignity or the embarrassment, the humiliation of of how my dad's relationship with his boss affects my relationship with the boss's kids and and my standing in a peer group and stuff and so but but again told with such with such vibrant humor and such a you know just a great energy i i do you know this you know exactly when you get into ranking ozu films you know what's top 10 uh i think dave eaves and one of his uh uh, Facebook comments uh, said, I'm convinced that Good Morning is the greatest Ozu film ever made. <laughs> and my comment to that was, well, anytime you watch an Ozu film, you, you might have the sensation that this is the greatest Ozu film ever made because they are all sort of distinctive and, and they all sort of have a way of capturing and, and drawing you in, or at least that's that's where I'm at, at least I'll say, is that it's, it's, it's easy in the moment while you're watching them to say, yeah, oh, this is it. This is the best. But, you know, there's so many <laughs> other great variations. Right. Yeah. Well, and they all inform yeah. each other, yeah. you know, they enrich each other. So, you know, if, if there was just one of these, you know, it, it they help they help each other stand on the, on the, on their shoulders as you're watching them. You know, if you've seen the more Ozu you've seen, the more you can appreciate each one yeah, of his I films. Agree. And, that, and that goes back to the old silence and the black and whites, too, because they are all part of this incredible, you know, uh, corpus that he's has put together probably for the interest of time let's just talk a little bit about floating weeds then uh this is a, a kind of a unique excuse me a unique specimen in ozu's catalog he produced this for the day studio and uh it was just kind of a unique uh clause that i allowed him to step out of his shochuku deal for a, a bit uh, his contract with Shochiku said one film a year, and it must be that Good Morning just fell together very efficiently, very propitiously, and gave him the free time to say, okay, let's go ahead and do this Floating Weeds project. And I think, Matt, you might have some background on this as well. Uh, Floating Weeds had been a project that Ozu had had in mind for a couple of years before he finally pulled it off. Do you have some context on that? Okay, I well, don't. okay, well, <laughs> my my thought my recollection is that he was actually going to do floating weeds ahead of good morning, but he wanted to do it up in this northern island with a more of a winter type of uh environment and the weather wasn't apparently suitable for what he had in mind. 
so he did good morning instead and then returned to floating weeds uh, so maybe just a real quick summary is that it's it's a story about a troop of traveling actors that uh, arrive in a town where the lead actor the kind of the, the head man of this of this uh, group has had a relationship uh, with a woman who lives in that town and that relationship some years earlier maybe 18 17 18 years earlier had produced a child uh, he had visited the town last uh, 12 years ago uh, the young boy born of this relationship uh, was led to believe his father was dead and that this traveling actor who kind of came in every so often was an uncle and uh and yet when this actor and his crew come into town and and he sort of concocts a story to visit an important patron to get himself away from his colleagues um you know suspicions arise and and uh the woman that he's got a current relationship with discovers that he's kind of revisiting an old flame and complications ensue as the uh, identity of this uh of this man and his relationship to this uh young man uh resident of this town you know come comes to the surface uh, so really it's it's a story of um you know conflicted relationships and it is you know, like I said, pretty much a remake of a story of floating weeds, another kind of uh, mid-30s Ozu, you know, highlight of that era where, uh, you know, his, his Kahachi character is kind of his, one of his main, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, his, his leading actors of that era uh, was, was cast in the role of this, of this actor. And, and so Ozu, you know, um, just really has an opportunity to, um, you know, kind of revisit revisit some some territory that was apparently pretty familiar and pretty important to him. Um, he was working with a different crew uh, as a, at the Day I Studio. This is a, it's a very visually splendid film. Uh, I think it's another really gorgeous. You know, some of some of the landscapes, some of the visual textures, and everything really really jump off the screen. And I guess I would say this would be a great candidate for another Blu-ray upgrade. So I guess that would be the next one I'd want to see on the list. Uh, but what are some of the thoughts that you guys had uh, watching Floating Weeds? Uh, I really like this movie, of course. Um, <laughs> uh, I think that um, watching these uh, these two movies, the story of Floating Weeds and Floating Weeds together, uh, is one of the most illuminating things you can do um, as a student of Ozu because uh, the, the, the slight uh, changes that he makes... And then his the way in which he incorporates kind of what's going on in the world around them here um, is really is really indicative of what you know Ozu was interested in um, and and what he really wanted to talk about even and even though you know this is an unusual late film for him it's not in Tokyo um, it's not about kind of it, it, I mean it's not about a, a upper middle class family um he's uh you know he's playing with different types of characters and it's also um pretty plot heavy um and kind of there's characters here that i think are, are mostly to advance the plot as opposed to have their own kind of internal lives in particular the the girlfriend in the troupe um is one of his more kind of one-dimensional characters uh in his later films um, 
he's still, you know, very much making an Ozu movie talking about the shifts in generations, the regrets. Um, and it's just a stunning movie. Um, it's one of his most beautiful, I think, uh, one of, uh, you know, such a incredible, uh, use of color and, um, some really stunning moments. I mean, you don't see a lot of rain in Ozu movies, and the scene in which uh, the the actor confronts his girlfriend um, under the awning, and there's a you know her her open red umbrella is sitting there is mm-hmm. just a stunningly beautiful and shot. such an emotionally powerful um, scene as well because all of his lies, all of his uh, his yeah. uh, you know his scoundrelly behavior is is just really coming to the surface, and yet he's just compounding his errors by treating her so cruelly and and yeah there i mean there really is a very heartbreaking crisis a series of them towards the end of the film as everything just kind of comes crashing down so it is there's there's a heaviness to it but there's also a kind of a strange reconciliation that happens at the end of it as well uh so it's not quite the same yeah i think that complicates yeah. her yeah. quite a bit yeah. in in not just being a flat character right. That's true. Yes. Yeah. And I, I think that the resolution here is is very Ozu in that sense. Um, yeah, I, I was more referring to, I, I guess, kind of, the, you know, her recruitment of the younger uh, actress. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it, yeah, that, it, the, you you don't typically see machinations that's, like that. That's spiteful manipulation, vengeance. Yeah. That's how the theater troops are. <laughs> Stay away from them. Uh, I, I do. Yeah. Well, I do really like the way that the theater troupe interacts, uh, you know, in the movie. And, and, you know, it kind of harkens back to the early spring um, uh, workers. There, There's a very uh, there's an ease with which they communicate. But there's also a camaraderie there that, you know, I, I always enjoy kind of in films uh, seeing the directors depict that kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, mm-hmm. club of of actors um and the way that they and relate i think to ozu could relate to that world i mean he had come up through the lean years of the japanese film industry i mean he you know at this point of course he was almost legendary and prosperous and and um kind of an institution in his own right but he still knew the lives of actors and the, and the performing artists and stuff like that uh, i do want to really single out the, the performance of machiko kiyo she's the the girlfriend uh, that we've been talking about and you know you, she's familiar face uh, she was the the wife in rashomon she was the kind of the gum snapping bad girl in street of shame and just as a, another side of her performance here i i really enjoyed uh her portrayal of this character is kind of cool to see ozu working with her uh at this stage of of both of their careers and uh yeah uh, trevor give us some of your thoughts on on this film oh i i really enjoyed it probably not as much as the other ones though that was changed quite a bit by just the beauty of the film itself i mean it starts playfully with the lighthouse. The, the lighthouse and the sh- and the bottle, which incidentally, David, maybe there's some hope here on the on the um, Good Morning Blu-ray. There are some clips of that in in some of the essays, and they look to be in yeah. HD I'm sure there's me, an HD transfer HD, of this so. out there. Yeah. There, there's a there's a Blu-ray of it um, in the UK, a Masters of Cinema of floating. Hopefully, leads. hopefully they didn't just use use that, but 
actually have a master that they have the rights to use. Yeah. But anyway, anyway. Um, and, and I love how that's just playing around and all the perspective shifts of that lighthouse. It's just, it just begins fun and goes into this, you know, for, for me, almost, uh, uh, almost refreshingly um, straightforward story since, you know, as, as we've been trying to prepare for these, I think, oh, I've got to try and really grapple with so many elements to, to understand the various angles going on. Whereas this one certainly had a lot of that, but is also a story that um, feels a lot more conventional. Maybe it'll be a little bit more welcoming, um, which can also be a problem. Um, not sure if you've if you've read this in a while, but on your website, David Keith Keith Enright, mm-hmm. who's not here to defend himself, <laughs> um, posted a comment that says, "I loved the earlier movie and found this one completely unnecessary." And then he says, "You know, it just seemed so on the nose that it just left me shrugging my shoulders." So I can see that response where you're like, "Okay, after all the riches of Ozu." Here we get one that feels much more conventional and plotted. Um, and yet I, I, I still had a lot of delight in it. And I think there is a lot going on still. Um, but, you know, maybe there's some merit to that as well, to, to Keith's response in saying, you know, this one's much, you know, relative to Ozu, mm-hmm. much more well, on the nose. And if you um, think about but it, that can be well, fine, it's the second you know? film that he had produced within the space of a year. So it's a bit of a knockoff, if you want to even call it that. It's a remake. So uh, I think he is kind of taking uh, a bit of time to do something different. Again, working with a new studio, a, a different type of story. Um, so that he, you know, it was basically kind of a, a, a quick one-off. And uh, that that's kind of nice to see. I mean, you will definitely see more gravitas in these next couple films, you know. <laughs> uh, but I, I feel like this one is, is a, it's, a, it's another one that I could say, you know, maybe not the ideal introduction to Ozu, but I think Criterion knew what they were doing when they put this little package together. Was it back in about 2003-04 or so? 2004 is when this uh, two-set uh, disc, uh, two-disc set was uh, released. Uh, kind of giving kind of, uh, you know, before and after, if you will, or or early and late uh, stage Ozu's. It's a nice package. It's got a Roger Ebert commentary and, and uh, just kind of a good overview of, of two very important, uh, crucial phases of Ozu's career. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think this is a pretty pretty fine ripping movie and, and uh, one that I definitely highly recommend. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it is a half hour longer than The Silent, so there, there's a lot that he packs in here in terms... I mean, I think it's a it's a subtler movie than The the Silent. The Silent definitely has a little bit more um, kind of uh, conflict coming to a head and, and some melodrama in it. Um, I think both are, are really great movies. I, I would say The Story of Floating Weeds is, is one of, one of uh, Ozu's greatest uh, silence. Um, but I, I, I think the thing I like the most about this movie is just the, the, the kind of languid, uh, tone, uh, or, or kind of, there's almost a humidity in the air, you know? Um, and he gets out of the city and it, it just, everybody feels like they have this kind of leisure. It's a leisurely paced film, even for Ozu. And I think that there's, it feels like a vacation to a certain yeah, degree. Yeah, yeah. It's that's like nice you're, t- you're taking this vacation mm-hmm. from uh, from from the, the Tokyo hustle bustle uh, and change. And you know, I think I really like that about it and the way they 
you know, get stranded there and, and are kind of just sitting around waiting. Um, it's, you know, it, it's very, uh, it's very rhythmic and peaceful. Um, and, and the fact that the movie is so beautiful and there, I mean, the, there are so many pillow shots mm-hmm. in this, uh, in this movie. I mean, he really gets into it. So, um, you know, I, I definitely think that's really what he was going for was almost this change of pace from, uh, the films that had come previously. Well, you know, I knew if you think about it with the, the story of the lives of actors and, and what really amounts to, uh, Ozu's exploration of sexuality and youthful, uh, eroticism. I, I wonder if this is kind of like we talked about, uh, you know, good morning as Ozu as Tati. Maybe this is Ozu as Bergman here or something like that. You know, the with uh, you know just kind of some of the themes he's exploring and and kind of taking a little peek behind the curtain. Uh, you know, I just kind of little whimsical thought that popped out of my head there. So, yeah. No, no. I mean, there's yeah, definitely like especially the early Bergman films with uh, you know kind of uh, rec- you know reconciling with the past. Um, there's definitely uh, you know a, a comparison to be made there. Well, I know we are coming up against the time limit again, so I wanted to be respectful of that. Um, so yeah, a few quick thoughts we had on these uh, on these two kind of interim films before we return to late Ozu proper next time we record. So Matt, Trevor, thank you so much for your insights today. Another great conversation. Definitely one that we're glad to share with our listeners. We'll be back uh, very soon with another episode, the final episode perhaps of the Eclipse Viewer. So tune in as we talk about late autumn, the end of summer, and perhaps the end of the podcast. (laughs) All right. Well, it's good to uh, chat with you guys. We're still waiting for the Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we we may have some announcements uh, early next week. We will see. Okay. Well, we're signing off for now. We'll talk to you all soon. Bye-bye.